0: The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disown, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received the living oracles to pass on to you. He's referring here to the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mount, top of the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments written in stone. He brings them down. This is what he's referring to. Now, at this point, is anybody mad? Yeah, they're mad. I mean, you know, he's been accused of... but. So far, he's produced good credentials. He knows the history. He recounts it faithfully. There's absolutely nothing offensive in this yet. But watch this next verse. He now says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, is there any reason to put that in when you tell the history? I mean, really. I mean, isn't the first rule of telling history is to tell the good parts of it? You know, you don't tell the bad parts. And so right here, it's true. They know it's true. I mean, their humiliation was known to everyone. But you'd think to yourself, did, did you have to say that? I mean, there are parts of the family you keep in the attic. Right? You don't bring them out, let alone in a public situation like this. You, you keep them in the attic under cover, Right? And so here he goes and he says what? He's he's talking about this and he says our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. This is the story of our hearts under Jesus Christ. That God rescues us from death and gives us the blood of his son. We're baptized and we come to the Lord's table and we commune with the Holy Spirit and the people of God in the blood of Christ. And then what do we do? The minute we leave, what do our hearts do? Back to Egypt. Well, I can't live without sexual immorality. I mean, that just really feeds my creative instinct. That's the basis that Alexander Solzhenitsyn told his wife he had to have adultery. Without it, his creative instinct would be gone. And he's a hero of mine. I I just, I, I can't, I can't live without money. I can't live without lies. I can't live whatever it is. We go back to Egypt. God has rescued us, forgiven us, and then we go back to Egypt. And so he says, I've got to find where I was. Where am I? Forty, thank you. Back to Egypt. Egypt saying to Aaron, verse 40, make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. (laughs) At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rothva, and the images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So what he's doing is he's saying, Okay. Here's the story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, God rescues them. They go out, but they want to go back to Egypt. And so God gives them the law. God gives them the tabernacle. God gives them himself, but they want to go back to Egypt. And so what did God do? God gave them over to going back to Egypt. Now, not physically. They they didn't go back to Egypt. But in their hearts, they were going back to Egypt. So God said, fine, you can go back to Egypt. So what do they do? They make it. They make it. They make. They make the bail from their jewelry. Remember that? And then they carouse. In other words, there was, the implication is a lot of sexual immorality that went with idolatry. Idolatry, adultery are hard to keep separate in your mouth. And that's because they're, they're just foot sides of the same coin. You give your heart to idolatry, God always gives you to adultery. Okay. Because God has ordained it that the marriage institution is the most perfect picture we have of the relationship between Christ and his church. And so if that relationship is, is violated, we become adulterers. What was the theme of, God, of Christ's accusation against the li- religious leaders of his time? You have adulterous hearts. OK, so God gives them over. They corrals around the bale. They've got their idolatry and they've got their adultery, right? But then God gives them over to something else. What was the something else? You saw it, but it didn't register with you. He gave them over to the worship of a God named what? Moloch. So he gives them over to what they want, the God they want, the idolatry they want. And the idolatry that they want is what? Moloch. And what is at the heart of the worship of Moloch? What you do is, we have in the back, Amanda. Amanda is holding her little boy, Amos, who is how many days old? Three days old. Jeff and Amanda take this little child and they put it in the mouth of Moloch. And the flames eat the child up. And that was the central act of worship of Moloch. Now, when I was preparing to preach this, I read a man named Matthew Henry, dead hundreds of years. If you only read one person about Scripture, read Matthew Henry. That's all you need. You don't need anybody else. That's how good he is. You know what he says here? He says, and now all through history, that worship is the principal image of how degraded, man can become in his religion. So here's Matthew Henry and the sophistication and, and Christian faith of the British Empire, right? And he looks back at Moloch and he says, it's never been anything worse. This is like the most degraded worship has ever become. And now where am I? I'm in 2008. And I'm looking at Matthew Henry as Matthew Henry looks back. And I'm thinking... No, it's much worse today. And it's worse today because you know when those parents took their little infant and they put their infant in the mouth of their God and he was burned up, you know that the mother's heart was absolutely inconsolable. She saw her child consumed. All right. But today, our mothers don't even cry. They pay money to have it happen. And then when they come out, anybody who would call them to repentance for the murder of their child, we call them a monster. And we say that that they are just awful, that they would ever put a guilt trip on a woman for having an abortion. You say, oh, yeah, but abortion and sacrifice to Moloch, they're different. I say exactly how? Well, because Moloch was worship, but abortion is yeah, choice. It's politics. It's you know, self-determination, it's autonomy, it's individualism, it's it's women's. In other words, we're so sophisticated today that we don't bother making images with our hands. Because really, who needs hands when you have a brain? Our gods don't need hands. They don't need physical things. Our gods are created by our brains, and they don't ever get involved in the messy things of life. You know, fluids, liquids, solids, smells. We're so sophisticated and so evolved and so progressive that our gods are all up here. You know, conceptual gods, you know, autonomy, individualism, self-determination. You know, Clint Eastwood. You know, somebody that's tough as nails or a woman that's a good bit like Eastwood but being pretty to look at. John Wayne. And so, today if you were to be Stephen and you were to be accused of being against the Christian God, of being opposed to the Word of God, of being opposed to... Pastors and denominations and everything that's precious to Christians, Billy Graham, for instance. If you were to be accused of these things and you were to go back and tell the story of Moloch, probably you'd all be with me, right? Yeah, that was awful. I can't believe God gave them over to that. And then every single time I bring up abortion with evangelical Christians in America today, oh, ho, ho. you should see it the way I see it looking at you. <laughs> It's like every single person there, if I, you know, I could say uh, apple pie, motherhood, adultery, incest, abortion, and all of a sudden the hair stands on end. Why? Because all of us have blood on our hands. All of us. Every single person here has blood on their hands. Every single one of you. And I have blood on my hands. You say, wait, are you saying I killed my children? I'm saying, uh, no. But you are. Part of the corporate identity of the United States of America. That's what you are. And so you have the blood of Israel. Do you notice all through his, he kept making generalizations. He kept saying they and you and they and you and they. And we're so tuned to being able to carefully separate ourselves from other people. That's central to the political rhetoric of our day. It always teaches us to never, ever, ever give way to uttering a stereotype or a generalization. But did you notice all through this, he says, they, 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 all of us, we, we, we. Did you notice that? In other words, you are guilty of the sacrifice of the children of this nation. You. Every single one of you. You say, oh, I, mo, I, I know. I say every single time you keep your mouth shut about it, every single time you decide that you're voting, it doesn't matter, every single time you pass Planned Parenthood, and it doesn't matter to you, you have become guilty of the blood of our nation. You know, we have people in this church that have actually paid to kill their children. We have in this church, because they've told me they did it. There are many of you I don't know about who have done the same thing. I know that. Do you realize that you don't have more guilt than I do? Because I don't care. Because I don't call you to repentance. You say, oh, but that's what you're doing right now. I say, come on, think broadly. Don't, Don't get so fixated on yourself. Last night, did you notice, Wayne Huck said to me, we were in the back and we're old fogies, And we listened to the music of the concert last night. And during the Arcade Fire tune, Wayne said, have you noticed that you can trace the growth of narcissism according to the decade in American music? Isn't that interesting? And so what are we left with as a people? We're left ultimately all by ourselves, aren't we? And that's what Satan does, is he completely destroys intimacy and communion. In the beginning of the garden, Adam and God, they were like this. And then Eve and Adam were like this. And then sin came. And what happened first, Adam and Eve had to cover themselves from each other. Before, they were naked and unashamed. But then they had to cover themselves. And then God came, and what did they do? They hid from God. And today, in 2008, we kill our children in the name of our gods, which are intellectual. All right. And then what do we do? We sing that we're in a cage and we can't get out. You know, the Beatles, at least, me shall my bell. At least they still had the ability of looking at someone and falling in love. But today, no, it's Me. <laughs> me. We got the buds in our ears, and we masturbate, and we divorce, and we kill our children. And now you feel a little bit what they felt as Stephen preached. Do you understand? And so he goes on, and he says this. Where am I? Yeah, Moloch 43, 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. So now we move over to the accusation he's against this place, and he is following the Nazarene who said he'd tear this place down, this sacred place, this temple. So now he focuses on the tabernacle, and he says, Having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. So now he says, "Okay, let's talk about this temple, all right? And he points to the tabernacle. Now, what is a tabernacle? A tabernacle is a tent. That's what a tabernacle is. If the festival of booths or tabernacles is celebrated in New York City by the Jews, what do they do? They take a bunch of canvas or probably nylon today. If you look at old pictures of it, you're looking from the back of the row houses. And all of the um, all of the fire escapes have these like canvas things hung on them. And to remember the days that they were like uh, uh, street people. All right. To remember the days that they were street people living off God. They put up these tents on the back fire escapes and they go out and they sleep in them. And that's the feast of tabernacles or booths in the religious Jewish community. Well, God had a tent. And what he's saying is, you say I'm against this temple. You remember back when God gave us a tabernacle and then when we came into the promised land, you remember that God still had his worship in a tabernacle in a tent. You remember that even when David came along, that the worship was in a tent. In other words, what is he saying? Well, by implication, he's saying, don't talk to me about this temple. God doesn't need a temple, but He hasn't quite said it yet. He's just reminding them that God was entirely willing to dwell in a place that was simply canvas. And that when David wrote 150 psalms, David didn't need to be inspired by the Sistine Chapel. David had the tabernacle. All right. In other words, we're honing in here, dudes. We're getting intense. So he makes allusion to the tabernacle. Our forefathers had the I have received it. They and David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Notice, God told David to make a dwelling place for the God. No, no, no. David wanted to do it. All right, A place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, now they all knew this by heart, the prophet was Isaiah. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. You know what? Some of you remember Rita Cuffey. She died a few years ago. Rita was my closest friend in Bloomington. We met together weekly. Wonderful, wonderful, godly, godly woman. Mother in Israel. Wonderful. And Rita told me a couple of times her story of coming to the Lord. She was raised in a Catholic family, but she said she couldn't find God in the Roman Catholic Church. She was on the east end of, of Boston, uh, down by the Old North Church, the real Italian neighborhood there, uh, going up towards Revere. And uh, so Rita said that she didn't find God in the Roman Catholic Church. So you know what she did next? Rita studied at Radcliffe. She went to Boston Latin School, if you know anything about education. (laughs) All right. Rita then went off to Radcliffe, which at the time was a woman's school. It was parallel to to Harvard. She went off to Radcliffe, and she intentionally chose to study what? Astronomy. Because she thought if, if man can't show me and lead me to God, the stars can. And so she gave herself to the study of astronomy to find God. That's why Rita studied astronomy. All right. Heaven is my throne. Have the cosmologists come to any understanding of God's glory yet? In my lifetime, how much has their estimate of the size of the universe expanded? Billions and billions and billions of light years. The state of the art of cosmology and astronomy has changed that much in my lifetime. Billions of light years, but but they're close to to understanding. it. And billions of light years is expanding. First it was slow, then it's fast. I mean, who knows what it is today? Tomorrow it'll be different. But they'll tell you they know, or that they're close, or that they're on the right track. And God says what? He says, heaven is my what? Heaven is my throne. And earth is the footstool of my feet. Do you know something? I get so tired when feminists give me the freedom to cry. I never needed it. Never needed it. I'm one big sap. Sentimental. I'm all the disgusting things of Western men today. And that means I knew how to cry. I was a big cry baby. Still am. Jesus cried. Shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. And you know what I don't need? I don't need people today to give me diversity. I have Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither slave nor female, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't need a counterfeit. Do you know what else I don't need? I don't need environmentalists. Because you know what? The Bible says what? It says heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? When our dear brother, a deacon in this church, defends the environment against corporations in this country, I'm all for him because I think it's an act of Christian faith. <laughs> you think, oh, I can't believe he said that. Absolutely. Because why? Because God dwells in this creation. And the beauty of it is his glory. Yesterday on the way over to the box bash, we saw a little fawn lying in the grass in the sun. It was clear the mother had died or abandoned it. And so we went over and we picked it up. Two or three weeks old, they said. Amy took it to the shelter and told us what they had said. How beautiful is a fawn. How vulnerable. Put it here on this concrete and after being cool for a while, it began to revive and it tried to stand up in its little, huge, monstrous rear legs splayed out couldn't get a grip on Mike's concrete <laughs> Mike was too cheap to give us carpet how glorious is a fawn? the other day we were over at Lawrence's and Al Parker was a member of this congregation in a manner of speaking for years and Al is the one who 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 really largely, single-handedly restored bald eagles to this part of the country. He's the one that put peregrine falcons up to kill uh, pigeons in the cities. He used to rappel out of helicopters into the top of trees to count the number of baby eagles there were in the nets. Bald eagle swooped in and came down and landed on a tree right in front of Lawrence's deck. And this is the act of Christians. Heaven. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. Now what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord. (laughs) In other words, look at the beauty. Look at the beauty. So what are you going to do for me? Exactly what are you going to do for me? So then we walk into the Sistine Chapel and we go... (laughs) And then we go to St. Paul's and we go, <laughs> and then we go to 10th Pres, and we go, <laughs> and then we hear a Cassavant tracker and we go. <laughs> it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. The most sophisticated, glorious cathedral that man has ever made that took him a century to build. Is absolutely nothing but disgusting, insignificant, penny-ante baubles next to God's creation. What place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men, now, here it comes, (laughs) you men, (laughs) I love it. Stephen's there and he's gone through the history and he showed that he has his stuff together. He knows about Teddy. He knows about Abraham. He knows about George. He knows about John Quincy Adams. He's read McCullough. He he knows the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created but equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among which are. So he's done it all. He said, "Okay, look, I circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee among Pharisees, just like the Apostle Paul. He goes through it all, and then he gets to this point, and he looks at them, and he says, all hell has broken loose in these men. And they're barely under control because there's just been a certain shading of the story in such a way that they know what's coming. And so at this point, he thinks, I better motivate them to listen a little bit longer. And so he, he, he drops the story for a second, and he says this. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Now, what would it be like to say to the Jews at the time, you are uncircumcised? There would be no insult. It would be greater than that. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing you could say that would be as offensive to them as saying, you're uncircumcised. We are not uncircumcised, you scoundrel. Don't you bring that up. We got that one right. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are what? Always resisting. Always resisting. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now... Should you ever say that? You men, always. I mean, the first thing a marriage counselor says is don't ever say always. (laughs) Right, right. And so he makes a crass generalization, which, of course, any idiot knows today in our postmodern unbelievably effeminate, cloying, sentimentalized, romanticized age, you're never, ever supposed to say. You don't ever say always. You don't ever say all. You don't ever say anything about the general. You're always specific, and then you hedge it with all kinds of weasel words that will allow even the specific to not apply to the person you're talking to. Some people, one, one wonders. Some would say... You stiff-necked and uncircumcised men, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, that's bad, but when you bring their dads into it, it gets worse. Because then what does he say? He says, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Oh, come on. Some of them, they didn't persecute. What's this generalization stuff? Which one of them did you not? Did your fathers not? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They said the Nazarene, he says, he was the one pointed forward to, he was your Messiah and you killed him. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. (laughs) Now, come on. (laughs) Is anybody surprised by the next verse? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Do you know that word cut that's there is used a couple of other places? Day of Pentecost, responding to Peter's preaching. But another place, Book of Hebrews, chapter on faith, where it talks about those who were what? Cut in two. And says, some lose their bodies and go to heaven. And some lose their souls. They're cut to the quick. And what do they do? They add to their wickedness. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing. Where else do we read constant references to gnashing of teeth? In hell. They're cast out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're cut to the quick. Their hearts are hard and they gnash their teeth as if it were giving prophetic word of where they're headed. But being full of the Holy Spirit, this is Stephen. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters who are believers here today, you live in a day where the pressure on you To deny the Lord is unbelievably strong. I often think that it's a pressure that has never been seen in the history of man. Not because you're being taken out and sawn in two, but because they have you so early that from the time you're at your mother's breast, you're taught how to speak in such a way that you deny the Lord from, 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 from your mother's breast in every way that you speak. Because you you never say all. You never speak of people's sin. You never violate relationships. You always use the word values. Do you understand what I'm saying? Alan Bloom, a professor of philosophy at University of Chicago, a practicing homosexual with no faith, writes The Closing American Mind. And in that book, he says, don't ever, ever allow them to force you to use the word values. Because he says the minute you use the word values, you have tipped your hat to the new constitution. And the new constitution is relativism. And when you talk about your values, you are admitting that your values are just a part of a huge, mass of jello that you know, together it's all indiscriminate. And he has his values, I have mine, and who knows what is right. He said you can't use the word values, ever without tipping your hat to the new constitution. So ever since I read that I've tried my best to not use the word values ever. Now, do you know how hard it is not to use the word values? I may be wrong, but I think there's only one thing you can say to put in its place. Brian, if you have another suggestion, let me know. But I've given a lot of thought to this because I talk a lot. And when I talk, I have to talk about things that are values. Right. Do you know what I think is the only placeholder for values that works for Christians? God's law. Now, how 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 well do you think that goes over? I mean, there's a nervous laughter. You know, What is it that allows Stephen to stand against the persecution and suffering? What is it that allows him to say, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised men? What is the only thing that will allow you to stand against the pressure to use the word values? That will cause you to be willing to say a generalization and to stereotype? Because you can't think or speak without using generalizations and stereotypes. Generalizations are true because they're generally true. You can't think without making statements, including a corporate group. You can't think. The whole point is to atomize society. I mean, that's why Arcade Fire is successful. I'm in a cage made by my own language. I have values and I never, ever talk about groups, but only individuals. The only thing that allowed him to stand against the oppressive persecution In opposition to scripture of his time was that he had his eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light and gray. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him that being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why did they take off their clothes? Why would they like, disrobe? Why did they take off their coats, huh? That was a job, according to the Old Testament, that the witnesses against a man would be the first ones to cast the first stone. And so the witnesses have to start. And how long does it take to kill a man? You know, they tried a number of times with this man, Saul, later, and they were unsuccessful. To do the job right, you really do need to take off your coat. Because it's hard work. And they laid their coats at the feet of this young man, Saul, who completely approved of what was going on. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Where does God dwell today in the new covenant? Does he dwell in the Sistine Chapel? Does he dwell at 10th Prez? Does he dwell at 2nd in Memphis? Let me tell you a little story about me. When I was young, it wasn't clear yet that I was a man that was committed to shooting myself in the foot. And I have just spoken in a way that is delicate for the sake of a worship service. There are easier ways of putting what I have become. But I still look clean, I still look presentable, and I had good credentials because my father was famous and everybody liked the books he'd written, and my father-in-law was famous and everybody liked the books he'd written, and I wore nice suits and I was well-educated. And so this man, who was still known today in the Reformed world, which is the world I live in as, as a Pharisee. This man uh, had this glorious church. So the senior pastor looks at me and says, this is a man I can work with. So he brings me down, and he wants me to work under him at this church. So I go down to be interviewed with my wife, and I go to this place, and it boggles my brain. Absolutely boggles my mind. I've never seen anything like it. It's like all gothic, and it's like got these windows that look like they came out of the medieval world you know, cut from stone and start at the floor and go up and thin. And, and then I go in the pastor's office it looks like an exhibit at Sotheby's or, you know, some, like, ancient palace in, in England. It's not American antiques. It's European antiques. It's Chippendale. It's all this, you know, oriental carpets and the old kind of desk that didn't... I mean, you didn't need drawers. You just had a desk of leather and mahogany. And boy, I began to fasten my middle button. And I could live with this. But before I went down there, I had asked for some tapes because I always figure if I'm going to work under a man, I better be happy with his preaching. Now, this man is erudite. This man is a patrician. This man has better breeding than any man I've ever met in the ministry. Let me tell you. This man never makes an ass of himself. All right. And so I get down there to this place, and my eyes are popping out. One of my duties, they explain to me, will be supervising the full-time employees whose job it is to schedule the gym in the underground handball courts under the gym. So, like, I'm going to be supervising the people who full-time do that. I also will be the liaison with the 400 boys' boys' school next door, where you can guess that all the rich people send their sons. Right. But I listen to the sermons and guess what? This man, this man that I go to Banner of Truth conference with, this man is pulling his punches. I know he knows better than this. And I get to the church and now I understand why he's pulling his punches. Every man has his price, right? And let me tell you, the price here was good. So I go into the cathedral, you know, it's modeled after a cathedral. It's this glorious structure, the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God. God. And you go up front and glorious pulpit worthy of a man of my stature. And I get behind the pulpit, you know, what I see I see a brass plaque. And you know what the brass plaque says? inscribed to the blast plaque so only the person that can see it is the preacher is are these words as what come on some of you know what i'm going to say as a dying man to dying men is a complete lie that man was paid to be pious to show it doesn't pay to be pious that man was a false shepherd Do I believe he's a Christian? Yes. Do I believe he has the right doctrine? Yes. But let me tell you something. His sermons were not the sermons of Stephen. They were not the sermons of Jeremiah. They were not the sermons of the Apostle Paul who says, I never stopped warning you day and night with tears from house to house. I never avoided saying anything to you that God told me to say. This is how Paul characterizes his ministry. What about Peter? You read Peter's letters. What about John the Baptist? He says, the man that says that he loves God and hates his brother is a liar because you cannot love God and hate the one that you see. You can't see God. How can you say you love God when you hate the man you can't see? His preaching was not Amos. Woe well, unto you, thousands of Bashan. You lie there on your couches saying to your husbands, Bring that I may drink. But, oh, they had their church. And you know what? So they had their church, right? Guess what was on the front of their bulletin? No scripture. No picture of Jesus. A picture of their church. And guess how big the bulletin was? No, it wasn't large print. It was large design. All those churches have what? Those massive bulletins that make you know that you have made the right choice. Like AT&T. Right? I mean, the bulletin tells you, you've arrived. You know? It's like if you have a blog and you're part of the emergent church, have your picture taken with a coffee cup. You know? Or a guitar. What does the Bible say about the temple that God will dwell in people? Let me read it to you. This is what it says. Isaiah chapter 66, 1 to 5. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is what Stephen quoted. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. But to this one, I will look. To him who is what does it say, people? To him who is humble And contrite of spirit. Remember, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. People, it has nothing to do with our building. I'm absolutely convinced, having been at a building that was on the National Register of Historic Places, where people constantly stopped in the road and got out to take pictures of my church. And then the day came when they had to choose God or their church. I I grieve over the souls that chose the church because their path has been clear from then on. The Bible makes it very clear what God desires, and it is your heart, His temple, and He will dwell in it if your heart is humble and if you mourn over your sin. And then you are the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then you are a joy to everybody in the temple of the Lord with you. Because you're not going around condemning everybody and and making it clear that your children are smarter than theirs. Because you are humble of heart and contrite of spirit. And you won't go out looking for a church that has more dignity than this one. We're, We're the sacraments. Are really efficacious. I mean, do you understand this? The whole federal vision movement, a huge proportion is the desire to go back to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, where we can have a building that looks magnificent, we can have sacraments that, that, that are large. <laughs> You say, what's the federal vision? I say, if you don't know, don't worry about it. And certainly I'm not arguing that evangelicalism, where all you have to do is say that you gave your life to Jesus, and and from then on you can live like a hellion, but it doesn't matter because you gave your heart to Jesus. And they have no doctrine of the church, and no doctrine of the sacraments, and no doctrine of the preaching of the word. That's not right. All right? The Bible says God dwells in the heart of the man and woman who are humble. And contrite. That means that if you want God to dwell in your heart, you cultivate what? Contrition. What is contrition? Have you ever heard that word used in an English class at Taylor? I mean, you know, they're into words, right? Have you ever heard it? Contrition. You know, it's like talking about double entendre today. I mean, double entendre. All we have today is single entendre. You know? Or what are some others? You know, like adultery. Nobody ever speaks of adultery. Nobody ever speaks of sodomy. It's it's like gay or homosexual. It's like affairs. You know? Contrite of heart means cultivating a broken spirit over your sin, which in turn will cause you to love Jesus Christ. Okay? But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who what? What does it say there? You should know it. You say you love the Bible, you should know what comes next. What does it say, crumb boys? Your dad's a preacher, what does it say next? He who is humble and calm, trait of heart, and who trembles at my word. That's what it says. Is anybody trembling at anything being preached in the American church today? Come on, tell me the truth. You bet, because there is no fear of God. Last night I read an article in the New Yorker about this man who has become unbelievably wealthy by how? By getting the gambling licenses for Macau from the Chinese. How did he do it? You know how he did it? He called Christian legislators in the United States of America and got them to back off of condemning the Olympics going to China because of the violation of the consciences of Christian and the killing of unborn children. This man was in China, and they let him know that if he would put pressure on endorsing the United States, shutting up about condemning China so that they'd get the Olympic bid, that then he'd get the fast path to putting his casinos in there. He got them, and now he's the third richest man in America, and he's got the Republicans in his hip pocket. Christians! I could name them. Nobody trembles at God today. Even conservative Republican Christians from the deep south are bought and sold like so much meat. And that's because the preaching they sit under does not cultivate the fear of God. They're not told to have contrite hearts. They're not told to be humble. And they're not told to tremble at the word. In fact, they're told that if they tremble at the word, it's obviously a legalistic church. uh, uh, Oh, come on. You know, you can come up with it. What would they say about it? A (laughs) cult! You know, let me tell you, people. The preaching in this church done by anybody, I don't care who it is, Stephen, David, Joseph, Jake, I don't care, Tim Wagner, whoever it is, the preaching in this church is precisely the preaching that has been done by the fathers of the faith across 2,000 years. There's absolutely nothing about our preaching that is unusual. Absolutely nothing about our preaching that's unusual. It is boringly normal across church history until you get to an age where people think that naivete is a principle, and where they think that to be a milk Christian shows your piety, and have forgotten that Hebrews says that it's condemnable, that it's damnable. This business about us being a cult is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. All this church is, is a boringly normal church across church history, but it lives in a day when everyone's blind. That's what we are. So we come back to Stephen. We see him. He's accused of what? He's accused of attacking God, the patriarchs, the law, and this place. And this place is the temple. Do you know that Jesus was accused of the same? That was central to the charges against Jesus that caused him to be crucified. Because Jesus had the audacity to say, when his disciples were trying to get him to fawn over the building, he said, Tear this structure down and in three days. So he morphs it into a prophecy about his resurrection. He wants our hearts to dwell in him. That's the new covenant. It's not some structure that's beautiful that we can put on the front of our building. If we get above 350 people. I mean, there's certain churches that should never have a bulletin this size. Because, I mean, come on. Until you've shown some success, don't claim that you should have a large format bulletin. You know, and, and then we get a large format bulletin. We put our church on the front of it. I'm tempted to put our church on the front of our bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> but then we would be taking pride in having humble and contrite hearts. I'm very thankful that God disciplined my desire to have a beautiful structure in the most sophisticated part of town. What I wanted was a church on the east side. I didn't want a church on the west side. And this is wickedness on my part. And then we got an architect who would build something beautiful, a man known for building buildings in this area that were uh, respected. We even broke ground. Good old Brandon jumps on the shovel with vigor and goes flying on his face. And I believed at that time, I thought right there, this is God. I absolutely was convinced that God was was rebuking us. And so what does God do? God ends up shoving us out here. And then we have a glorious box and we have to pare it down. I spent three days fighting over that. I was so angry that we wouldn't even be able to build what we had planned on. It was ugly. Wasn't that good enough? No, it had to get small, too. And David, where are you? How angry was I when I was talking to you on the phone? <laughs> How many? It took a couple of days, didn't it? Yeah. And so, see, people, this church isn't built on David or May or Mike or this building. This church is built on God disciplining us and making us tremble at his word and then disciplining us more. And then when we think we can't go lower, he's got more plans for us. But the goal is that he dwells in our hearts, that we are the temple of God. And that our hearts are soft, that they're contrite, that they're humble, that they're loving, that they tremble at the word. This is who we are. Don't have to live like a refugee. Yes, we do. That's who we are. We're refugees. We're on pilgrimage. We're sojourners. We're the we're, shrewders, <laughs> we're the, the scruters, you know, without a country. That's who we are. So I love it. I'm so thankful to be your pastor. So thankful. Your hearts are so beautiful. Who was it that just told me what it was like preaching here? Somebody just told me their impression. Yeah, what did you say? You were talking, he was teaching Sunday school. What did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Lucas was talking about what a joy it is to teach in the Sunday school class. And it was because of your hearts. It's so sweet and open and soft and teachable. And you don't punish your pastors for being faithful. You punish us when we're not. This is a church. So, Mike, where are you? Where's Mike? Stand up. Thank you. Thank you. Mike's the builder, and that's why he was up here leading today. And Mike has disciplined us financially, structurally, and he's given us this building, and it's good. Now let's go uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, get the kids in. We're going to bring the children in so they can be a part of the prayer of dedication. And then we'll uh, dedicate the building, finish it up, and then we'll eat. And when we